Uh, in the previous passage, the, the passage that I began reading to you, at uh, chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, Paul there discusses the works of the flesh and the works or the fruit of the Spirit. Now he engaged in that discussion in the context of a battle that takes place within a believer between his flesh and the Holy Spirit who dwells in the believer. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. You are a temple of the Lord Most High. If you believe in Jesus Christ, there's a battle between the Holy Spirit who dwells in you and your flesh, meaning that old sinful nature that is dead but doesn't know it yet. That acts like a snake with its head cut off. I just saw recently a, a video of a snake that had, had its head cut off. I think it was a copperhead or a, or a rattlesnake. And the, the head of the snake that had been cut off ended up biting the tail of the snake from which it had been severed. That in some ways is a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? The Christian walk. Well, the Lord tells us in this passage how we are to behave as Christians. This morning's passage is the first Five verses of the final chapter of Galatians. And this concluding section contains a somewhat jumbled mix of practical instructions. Now, these instructions may seem jumbled, and in some ways they kind of are. It seems like Paul is he, he's throwing in everything here at the end, as he sometimes does in his ethical section, as his concluding remarks. He wants to get in. Parchment was precious. <laughs> and he was sending this letter off to the Galatian churches. And he thinks of things and he wants to get them in, but they're not random and they're certainly uh, not uh, uh, whimsical or capricious. They're important. They're directly related to the previous passage, the, the first five verses of chapter six. It's much easier for Paul to commend to the Galatians the fruit of the Spirit that it is for Christians to actually bear that fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, for uh, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's very easy to say those things. It's very easy, at least for most of us, uh, to memorize those things, but to do them, to bear them, it's much more difficult, isn't it? And chapter 6 shows that Paul realizes this. Paul realizes that, that this is a world in which people get hurt physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And chapter 6 shows how we bear fruit in those situations, under those circumstances. Being a part of Christ's church means that you should never have to face the hardships of life alone. Sometimes we do, but, but we ought not to. Because we're a body. And as Paul says elsewhere, when one member of the body suffers, the, the rest of the body suffers, right? When, when one member experiences joy, the rest of the, the members ought to experience joy. When you're a member of a church, it means that when you get beaten and broken by the spiritual battles that you face, you've got people who will lovingly take care of you, who will gently restore you. Brothers, we and sisters, we are at war, not with our, our, our neighbors, our fellow image bearers, okay? We are at war against Satan and those who fight alongside him. We are in battle, a spiritual battle. But God has given us spiritual weapons to fight in that battle. And he's said to each of us that we ought to be medics who come alongside those who are suffering, who are hurt, to help get them back in the fight. 
And so it means being a Christian, being a member of a church, that when the weight of life is threatening to crush you, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who will step in and help you carry that burden. Because that is what Jesus Christ did for you and me. That leads us to the the statement that I would like you to to consider, to keep in, in the front of your minds as we work our way through the sermon this morning. Jesus Christ bore the burden of our sin and guilt on the cross, and we must bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ bore the burden of our sin and guilt on the cross, and we must bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't bear their sins. You can't bear their guilt. Jesus Christ has done that for them. But when you see a brother or sister in Christ in need, it's not optional. You must help bear their burden. It's a command of the Lord. And that's the first uh, part, the first section of the sermon this morning, bearing each other's burdens. And the second part, and this is just a two-part sermon, a two-point sermon, bearing your own load. Again, bearing each other's burdens And bearing your own load. So let's look at the first part of the sermon now. Bearing uh, each other's burdens. When we read through this passage, you might have been struck as as I was by what seemed to be a contradiction between verses 2 and verse 5. In verse 2, Paul commands us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then in verse 5, it seems like he turns around and says that each will have to bear his own load. And Paul's two statements, they seem contradictory, but they reflect the tension that every Christian feels. We are at the same time utterly dependent upon God and yet responsible for our own actions. In the church, our dependency on God means that at times we'll be dependent upon God's people. There are times when God will use the shoulders of others to carry our burdens. And yet, as verse 5 shows, we still need to take responsibility for ourselves and bear our own loads. We'll get into what that means in each particular case. Verse 1 gives us practical illustrations for carrying someone else's burden using a specific situation to illustrate it. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, in the struggles with the flesh... In the struggles with the world, in the struggles with the devil, there are times when any one of us can fall into temptation and get caught in sin. And when someone is caught in sin, when it it comes to the attention of others, perhaps it comes to the attention of others because uh, the offending brother, the sinning brother, sins against another brother or sister in Christ. When someone is caught in sin, that offending brother, the one who has committed the sin against someone else, he should be restored in a spirit or with a spirit of gentleness. This restoration process is what's known as church discipline. Now, what Paul's saying here, it may not sound like church discipline to us, but that's because our understanding of church discipline needs to be corrected. We have a, a skewed view of what church, what church discipline means. We think mostly that it's, it's, very, it's, it's very formal, and it happens in the courts of the church. And, and most people today, brothers and sisters, most brothers and sisters in Christ think that church discipline is abusive. They, they, have, they have seen things, perhaps they've been on the receiving end of abusive types of discipline, and, and therefore it, it's colored the whole thing in a negative light for them. 
The aim of all church discipline, from the least offense to the greatest offense, is to bring glory to God and to restore the offending brother or sister into a right relationship with the Lord, but also with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we want the offending person to be restored to a right relationship with God. As I said, the reason that we so often have a distorted view of church discipline is because it is so often poorly, poorly carried out. It can be abused. It can be administered vindictively. Because those who have authority in the church, and in our particular uh, denomination, our particular type of church, it's, it's the elders, we, we have rule by presbyters, those in authority in the church, they're sinners too. Desiring to restore the sinner to a proper relationship with God in the spirit of gentleness is the corrective to abusive discipline. And to help get the proper perspective on church discipline, we need to see the church as a hospital. And we need to understand that the person, the brother or sister who has been caught in sin as someone who has broken their arm or, 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 or done some sort of injury to themselves and to others. Restoring the injured person would be setting the broken bone and putting it in a cast so that it will mend properly. In fact, the word translated restore is a term for medical healing. It means to return to its former condition. Now, having a broken bone set is not something that you want a person on the street to do for you. Ideally, you want an orthopedic surgeon who has done it many times. This is not their first case. And they come in and they're a pro and they know exactly what they're doing. And the same is true of someone who is being restored from falling into sin. And that's why Paul says in our passage, you who are spiritual should restore him. This doesn't mean that only the pastors or a pastor or the elders can restore a sinner. When Paul says you who are spiritual, he's making a reference to those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Going back to that previous passage in chapter 5. Those who are being led by the Spirit. Those who are spiritually mature. Well, most likely, Paul has in mind here what, Peter, what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. We read that earlier. Verse 15 says, If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Verse 15 in Matthew 18 is church discipline at its most basic level. It's the members of the church policing themselves, but in a good way, not ratting someone out. Going to a person, brother, you sinned against me here. I, I'm, I am offended by what you have done to me. You, you cause me hurt. You cause me harm. Doing it in a gentle way, in a loving way. And if forgiveness and restoration occur here, this type of discipline never reaches the leadership of the church. It never escalates to the next level, the next step or stage in discipline. But we might add, and maybe I misspoke there about this being the most basic form of church discipline. I suppose the most basic form of church discipline is you're sitting in church, you're hearing the word of God read, you're hearing it preached, and you come to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you repent of your sin. And if there's a situation in which you need to go to someone you sinned against, you take the lead and go. That's very basic. That's grassroots church discipline. But if these things don't work... If the offense can't be resolved by talking with the brother alone, Jesus says in verse 16 of Matthew 18 that you take it to the next step, which is to bring one or two others along with you who witness the offense. If, if the offending person won't listen to you, you're, you are flat wrong. I did not do that thing. You bring a witness or two. Again, with gentleness, with care. You're not trying to crush this person. 
You're not trying to be vindicated, proven to be right. You're bringing other people who can say, brother, yes, you sinned in this way. And only after that fails, and of course, we need to be specific here. We're talking about matters of private offense, where only a few people are aware of it. Not not public sin, public scandal. That's very different. Private offense. If that doesn't work, if the offending brother refuses to listen, even when you have witnesses who've come to, to talk to them, then you take it to the courts of the church. You all bear responsibility here. If you are sinned against, talk to your brother or sister. Seek to mend the damage that has been done. But remember that your desire should be to restore the relationship. Remember to do it in a spirit of gentleness, which is a fruit of the spirit. If it's a minor private sin, if it's something that's not major, you can cover over that sin with love. You can, you can choose to forgive the person. It's a one-off sin they've, they've committed against you. You can choose to forgive them, but if you can't do it, you, you've got to go talk to them. Otherwise, the, the seed of bitterness will grow into a root and a full-grown tree of bitterness. And, and relationships in the church will be completely destroyed because of, of your inaction, the failure to do your duty to speak to your brother or sister with a spirit of gentleness. What are the dangers for a surgeon who's doing surgery uh, and who perhaps is good at it is that they run the risk when they've saved a number of people's lives or done a number of amazing types of surgeries to become conceited. Uh, We say that, that that surgeon has a God complex. There was a survey or a study done in the last decade or 15 years perhaps that uh, the rates of of narcissistic personality disorder among surgeons. (laughs) Surgeons, I think, pilots, and then members of the clergy. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I I don't know what to say there. No comment. (laughs) Plead the fifth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but we want our surgeons to be good. We want them to be confident, but we don't want them to think that they're the ones doing the saving. And the same is true for those who seek to to, to mend spiritual wounds. Paul warned at the the end of chapter 5 against becoming conceited. And this is what he says at the end of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You may not be tempted in the same way that the person was tempted who committed the sin. You may be tempted to think of yourself as pretty great. Wow, I'm good at this restoration business. This correcting other people's sin business. And that's a dangerous attitude to have. If we, believe, we begin to believe that we're the ones doing the healing, that we're some sort of guru with all the answers, we will develop an arrogance in our relationships with others. Restoration requires humility on the parts of both people involved in it. Not just the, the person who has done the sinning and needs to be corrected, but the person who is seeking to correct, seeking to restore We need to remember that it is God alone who restores a sinner. We are simply privileged to be instruments in his hands if he so chooses to use us in a particular situation. But Paul also says that we should keep watch on ourselves because it's easy for us to become tempted by the same sins as those we're trying to help. It's easy to become tempted by the sin that, that, boy, I am something. I'm going to set up a ministry in my own name and carry it out. 
We must constantly be on guard so that we don't give in to the same temptation. After Paul has given instructions on restoring a sinning brother, he makes a fairly general statement in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Restoring a sinner is one of the uh, one example of bearing one another's burdens, entering into uh, the, the troubles and travails of another person, getting involved when things are messy. And we just would rather avoid the mess, right? We want to go around it, steer clear, go into avoidance mode, not confront, not deal with things, paper it over, move on. Restoration requires the gentleness of a surgeon's hands, but bearing each other's burdens, as Martin Luther says, requires strong shoulders and mighty bones. You are taking on the weight that someone else is carrying, not necessarily the weight of sin. You can't bear their sin. But if someone is in trouble, someone is suffering, and you come alongside them and you enter into their suffering, you care about them enough to, to see how they're doing and try to perhaps alleviate their suffering in some way, you're taking on their burden, helping to, helping to bear it. Bearing another's burden requires strength, but it also requires a willing heart. It's not enough simply to be aware of someone else's need. Paul commands us to jump in and help out. This is not a suggestion, what he says in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. It's a command. We need to know each other well enough that we'll know when someone else is in the church needs help. We need to be able to t- detect a tone of voice or notice a look in our brother or sister's eye. But there's something else, too. If you are suffering, if you are in need, if you are so burdened down in your soul, maybe the rest of us are just blind to it. Maybe you're doing a really good job of hiding it, keeping it all to yourself. If you're so burdened down that you need help, don't be afraid to ask. But we are. We're ashamed. Don't be afraid. This is a hospital. This is the place that that the Lord has ordained for healing to take place. We've got to be willing to help. And it all goes back to Paul's command in chapter 5, verse 13, to serve each other. In love, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the law of Christ. And when we bear each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. That brings us to uh, the next section, the last section, bearing your own load. Bearing one another's burdens requires humility. Conceited people do not think of others as being more important than themselves, so they're unlikely to ever bother to bear another person's burdens. Paul deals with this in verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The arrogant person who will not help someone in need thinks he is really something. But he has deceived himself. He is in reality nothing, as we all are in reality. But the person who knows that he has been created by God, redeemed in Christ, truly is something. Apart from Christ, I am nothing. I am a nobody. But in Christ, I have everything I will ever need. Every spiritual gift I have, every fruit of the Spirit, comes from Christ. We who are alive in Christ and are being led by the Holy Spirit will develop the same mindset of John the Baptist. 
that he had about Jesus when he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. He says that in John 3.30. Jesus Christ must become greater, I must become lesser. As that happens in our own hearts, other people will become more important to us, and we will want to help carry their loads. But how do we do this? How do we avoid thinking we're something when we're not? As Paul says in verse 4, each one should test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in, be in himself and not in his neighbor. We are to test our actions. How do we do that? We have to look at ourselves in light of what Christ has done for us. Well, the New International Version translates verse 4, each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to anyone else. When we compare ourselves to other people, either we feel discouraged because we discover that others are more faithful in their walk with Christ. They're just a better Christian than I am. I'm a terrible Christian. Look at so-and-so. She is such a wonderful Christian, such a godly woman. Compared to her, I'm nothing. So either we feel that way or we feel proud because we think we're better. God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. What does Jesus have to say about the person who thinks that way? When we're tempted to compare ourselves to others, we should instead test ourselves against God's word. This is self-examination. And the purpose is to help determine our standing before God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now this is the type of testing that Paul is talking about in our passage. And there are only two possible outcomes. Either Christ, Jesus, is in you, or he is not. We're testing our works for evidences of faith in Jesus Christ. The Westminster Confession describes good works as the fruit and the evidences of a true and lively faith. Works don't justify you in God's sight. They give evidence that you are justified. And if you meet the test, if you determine that Christ is in you, then you have reason to boast. But let your boasting be the same as Paul's. He says in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the, Christ, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We don't boast about ourselves and what we have done. We boast about what Christ has done. We boast about the cross of Christ because he took our place on it. We boast about him. Now Paul commanded us in verse 2 to bear each other's burdens, but now in verse 5 he says, for each will have to bear his own load. Was Paul contradicting himself here? The verses 2 and 5 reflect the balance between dependency and personal responsibility. We are all utterly dependent upon God for everything. And God in his wisdom has designed the church in such a way that we're dependent on each other. But that doesn't mean that there's no personal responsibility. We are commanded to help carry each other's burdens, but there are some loads that you alone must carry, some that I alone must carry. God has given you specific responsibilities in your life. He's given you unique gifts to carry those responsibilities out. You alone are accountable to God for how well you carry out the responsibilities he's given you. If you're married, you have a responsibility to your wife, not some other man. If, 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 you're, if you're a wife, you're... You have a responsibility to your husband, not some other woman. There, there are burdens that we alone must carry. We can't expect someone to come in and take our place and do our job. 
And you must have faith in Jesus Christ in order to carry out these burdens. You can't receive salvation because of somebody else's faith. You, you can't rely on the fact that, you're, that your parent, your, your mother, your father was some famous Christian. And some families do this. Well, so-and-so, grandfather so-and-so, he was a great man of faith and he was world-renowned because of this. And I'm good. Because I'm his grandson. That's simply not the case. Faith in Christ is a load that is individually suited to each of our shoulders. Now, there will be times when we need someone else to come beside us and help us with our burdens. We may even need someone to carry us, too. I, I think I've told this story before. I'll tell it again. You, you guys seem to like stories of when I was in the Marines. Uh, I, I, I never served in combat. I am not a combat vet. I would never uh, try to make, even make you think for a second I was. When I was in boot camp. I, I, was an, I was an older guy. They called me the grand old man of the Marine Corps because I was older when I enlisted. I barely got in under the, under the, the uh, age limit. And I was not in good shape. And I get to my shame, I say that because, because everybody else was. And there were young men coming out of, of high school who had run track and played football and, and were amazing athletes. And they could run three miles in under 18 minutes. And I was coming in at under 30 and doing well. When I did, feeling well about it. But there were times when I simply could not do the physical exercises on my own. And I remember one time we were doing, we were doing, uh, circuit, uh, doing a circuit inside our, our barracks. And we moved all of our bunks out of the way and we'd set up these, uh, a circuit course to, to do weightlifting and all of this stuff. And I got to the point I, could not, I couldn't walk. And I had a guy, a young, a young recruit who was bigger than me and stronger than me and younger than me. And he came along and he literally put his arm around me and carried me through the course to finish. Because he knew what the drill instructors would do to me if, if Troutman couldn't finish it again. And he helped me out. I don't remember that, that young man's name, but I'll never forget him and what he did. He helped me to get through basic training. That's what the Lord calls each of us to do for one another. When our strength is failing, when we're weary, and, and you'll get weary, brothers and sisters, you will. And some of you are right now. And some of you are doing a really good job of hiding it. <laughs> but you need the help of your brother and sister in Christ. You need it. And for those of you who are strong, for, for whom you're not suffering, struggling in, in the same way as others, Pray that the Lord would give you eyes to see when those around you are suffering and struggling. And take the time to pick them up. That guy did not have to help me. He had no obligation to help me. He could have let me go to the pork chop platoon, which was the physical conditioning platoon, and I would have stayed in the, at Paris Island for another six to, to eight months. But he helped me out. And that's what the Lord is calling each of us to do. Now, this should not come as a surprise to us. You and I, we could not carry the weight of our sin. We needed Jesus to bear it for us on the cross, right? We are dependent upon Jesus Christ for our salvation, and we are dependent upon our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in our Christian walk. We need help. God did not design us to go through this life alone. The Christian faith is not a, a faith of the Lone Ranger, it's a faith of, 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 of brotherhood, a band of brothers, if you want to look at it that way. 
We are dependent upon Jesus for our salvation. We are dependent upon our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us in our Christian walk. But we also may be used by God in our brothers and sisters' lives. We've got to be ready to jump in when needed. We need to look for opportunities to serve each other in love. Just as Christ died for us, giving his life for our sins on the cross, so we too, we must die to ourselves and give of ourselves to others. But we've also got to realize that there are certain things I can't do for you and you can't do for me. There are personal responsibilities that we must each bear before the Lord. And the first of these responsibilities is our faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by other people's faith in him. We each bear individual responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you don't, if, if I don't, if, if we don't believe in Jesus Christ, we will bear the punishment for our sins because he didn't take that punishment upon himself. He took the punishment upon himself only for those who believe in him. Jesus Christ bore the terrible burdens of our sin and our guilt on the cross. And in so doing, he has set us free from enslavement to our own self-interests. He has set us free to help bear the burdens of others. And believe it or not, brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is the gospel. Let us pray.